also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello and welcome back to this episode of The Bottleman, a podcast about Canada to which you are currently listening. A, pod- a podcast about Canada and Foley. That's right. That's what that is. Uh, my co-host, Dan Beckner, of course, ably doing uh, a perfect sound effect for uh, dropping what sounds like an empty pudding can off of a desk. It, uh, it was the cap to this uh, soda that I'm drinking. The brand is AHA. Um, uh-huh. which I have switched to because I found out that my other favorite soda, Bubbly, with one B, um, uh-huh. it has partnered with SodaStream. Um, so I, I, and I, I can't drink it anymore. So yeah, see, you you had to move to uh, you had to move to Aha, a BDS compliant soda. Yeah. Uh, and uh, joining us uh once again, uh, we are very pleased to have uh Matt Chrisman with us. Another edition of Canadian Prime Ministers Through History. Matt, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me back. Love to talk about uh, Canada, uh, the the friendly version of America. Isn't that right? That's right. Uh, that's right. Yep. The soft, cuddly version of America. <laughs> who would, that's, look, that's just... Who would sorry, never, ever cry because they uh, weren't getting nuclear submarines from their big brother uh, down south to uh, help protect the world against uh, China. No, we, we, would never, we would never throw a sort of a minor strop uh, because... Uh, we weren't being given nuclear submarines to militar- militarize the Arctic for some reason. We would, we would, Not us at all. We would never sit in our big, uh, our big high chair and, and wave and kick our chubby little arms and legs and scream about militarizing the Arctic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, can os ock. It fits so well. It rolls, trips off the tongue. We should be in there. Um, but uh, no, we're, uh, we're going to continue our, our little exploration through history of Canada and what Canada has meant through the through the uh, thinking about people who have led us, right? Um, and you know, as as sort of as, as Matt is uh, sort of a and very knowledgeable about um, sort of you might say the last several centuries of um, of North American history generally. I think it's uh, offers a very interesting point of comparison to look at, say. The various sort of psychoses and manias that uh, caused a Canadian, uh, you know, a bunch of dour Scotsmen to come and, you know, try to scratch a living off the Canadian shield. And as much as it sort of drove um, other uh, insane English Puritans to try to find, uh, you know, a, a, a society without sin and decadence in Plymouth Rock, right? These are, I, I, sort of, I, I sort of see these things as slightly parallel, but going in very different directions. So, I mean, um, Matt, like, what's the if we're talking about our, our foundation stories, in in terms of how you see the American sort of foundation myth, the the foundation story, we just get like a quick pricey of it so we can see the comparison to the Canadian stories. So the American foundation myth is a tale of rugged frontier settlers who are after being choked by the the yoke of tyranny from their uh their brethren in england who who tax them without representation who uh do something bad involving tea that none of us are really very clear on (laughs) uh that is a very important part of it is that the tea thing that nobody actually understands 
Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of most people, if you ask them in America, what was the deal with the tea? If they knew what you were talking about, they would say, oh, yeah, they were taxing the tea. The tea was costing too much. Actually, no, uh, the, the tea was going to be cheaper. <laughs> they were going to actually the British were going to make the tea cheaper because they were going to uh, they were going to uh, abolish the, the all the middlemen, all the little merchant middlemen in Boston who are who are getting between the uh, the the crown monopoly uh, and the customers and it was going to actually reduce the cost but that was also going to reduce the 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 premium that those guys could charge so they got pissed off uh and <laughs> decided to tell everybody else uh hey you guys are really mad about this tea stuff and then people were mostly just completely shit-faced all the time and they're like sure whatever you want me to dress up like an indian <laughs> and throw some shit in the, into the water that's fine by me but they um but resisting this tyranny uh, uh, the country came together under the leadership of uh, God Emperor George Washington, uh, and we we kicked the shit out of them with no help from anyone else. Certainly not the French, uh, <laughs> or the Dutch, uh, or the Spanish. Uh, mm-hmm. And in so doing, we're able to forge our own independent country uh, based on freedom the the freedom to pay as little for tea as possible. <laughs> Well, as little or indeed as much with as many middlemen as we can possibly cram into yes. this process. So, as many beaks getting wet as possible. I'm just thinking about the guy in the sugar pile. You know, when Homer has the sugar pile and he pulls the guy yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. Just a nation nation of that. But it's a pile of tea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a we will we fight to preserve the sacred retailer distributor wholesaler relationship. Everybody gets a slice. Um, but I think like. One of the one of the interesting things, right, is that um, is when when you come to America, there is this sense almost that it is one of these first modern projects, right? The the creation by sort of you know um, by human craft and, and ingenuity or divine inspiration or whatever of this entirely new place, this new type of place, and again, how well that gets you know accomplished, how well that how that sort of gels with people who are having to contend with all of the samenesses of the old that they bring over with them seems like the the foundation of america whether you're talking about its myth or whether you're sort of pricking open its myth in all cases it seems like this this very psychically turbulent time it is it is it is sort of great schisms and and and, and creations and it's a full of drama i think you know is it you would say that's is that accurate Oh yes, it's uh, it is a uh, it is a titanic struggle. It is people. It is a people coming into awareness of themselves through struggle. Mm. And I think if by by thinking about a little bit about the life and times of John A. Macdonald, we can explore a little bit of the vast differences in Canada's foundation myth from America's, because they are quite considerable. So I'm just going to read, um, this is from the diary of a woman called Anna Brownell Jameson, who was um, a sort of a, a, a traveler in Ontario who wrote this in 1837. She said, she remarked on the seemingly interminable line of trees before you, the boundless wilderness around you, the mysterious depths amid the multitudinous foliage where foot of man hath never penetrated, the solitude in which we proceeded mile after mile, no human being, no human dwelling within sight. Okay. And okay, I yeah. So as as someone who frequently has to drive from Montreal to Toronto uh for work mm-hmm. like on tour. Yeah. Th- 
that stretch of highway, um, as soon as you leave Quebec and you, and you travel through the great green nothingness that is Ontario, all the way down to uh, Ontario's Ohio, southern Ontario, um, <laughs> it has like a mind erasing effect. So mm. I, I, I think that still persists, but instead of like boundless tracts of wilderness, it's just sort of like half built up agricultural land and then like en route gas plazas over and over and over again. <laughs> uh, but it's what, what I think sort of what, what this strikes me about this, the passage from, from Anna Brown or Jameson is, is how sort of distinct it is from a lot of how, from how America would have been described in its own early days as late as the 19th century, even which is this place where, Oh, there are tracks. God has prepared a track in the wilderness for us. He has you know, given us this bountiful land that is for human habit. It is a gift. It's our free real estate. Whereas the, 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 the myth of the Canadian land even has, al- has always been that it is, um, it is it, it's, it's other, it's difficult, it's wild, it's wilderness. It's, it's, the, Canadian, it's the unfarmable Canadian shield yeah. cutting off the populated uh, uh, sort of areas of Ontario and Quebec from the fertile land of the prairies. Like you couldn't expand from Ontario to Manitoba just by walking over and farming the next plot of land because the farmable land stops for a very long time. Yes. You had to be very, very in- intent to like get to the actual prairies, which is one of the reasons that Canada is sort of so fractious. But I, I just I see it as imagined as two very different places because it's I, I'm not wrong to say how a lot of American settlers saw it was a place for us ordained by God, right? Oh yeah, mm. I mean that was the whole they project saw- is that this is a place to to uh, impose our will outside of the uh, restraining uh, structures of European society mm. and uh, just a, a nice a blank slate. Yeah. And so, just a little more sort of on our, our sort of deep Canadian history, they can ask the question, um, if, if all of these were sort of British colonies at sort of different points, uh, the simple answer as to why Canada wasn't incorporated uh, is because the Protestants of America could not stand to get into a political union with a largely French and Catholic uh, uh, country of, of Canada, the province of Canada above them. They, will, they would not have it. That's right. Um, and there was, there, was no, there was no question of these you know, uh, uh, sinners and papists being included uh, in God's great project for us. Um, and this sort of, I think, comes to one of, the, one of our sort of first points, because I, I want to sort of explore the life of Johnny MacDonald a bit thematically, right? I think that this comes to our discussion of why Canada is a fake country. Um, because you say like America is born out of the, uh, of, uh, or at least even its stories are a people finding itself, Re- a people creating itself. Revolutionary you know, struggle it, and and uh, and a destiny. Yeah. Whereas you know, um, Canada is, and again we'll sort of talk about this a bit more. The story of the creation of Canada is largely the story of um, new management taking over a set of existing infrastructures that were already there. Right, George Washington was this uh, the statesman and a general who led across the Delaware and so on. John A. Macdonald was uh, a drunk lawyer, <laughs> basically. That's right. He was a a, a bo- He was a boss tweed figure, um, who was a, a a 
who played a patron, a game of patronage politics, who liked to make deals, and who frequently uh, got so drunk he would puke on stage. Um, during debates. And <laughs> during debates. That's just showmanship, honestly. <laughs> Our first prime minister could burp the national anthem and puke on command. Yeah, and that's another interesting thing we're going to get into is that is that in one man you have the duality of of uh, the Canadian. You know, you have the oaf who we uh, detailed the last time we had you on, Matt, and you have the oaf overseer occupying the mm. same body at war with itself. But his oafish behavior in uh, vomiting during a during a during a political debate only endeared him to the oaf class, and I think people. I think people, the oaf overseers around him recognized that and were either jealous of it or impressed. They certainly recognized the power to, to be able to uh, entrust the, the creation of this country uh, into the hands of someone who they, could, they understood was uh, one of their class, one, one of those people charged with managing the oafs, uh, but who could just by his own, by his own weaknesses and, and uh, his own uh, uh, public displays of uh, oafishness mm. guarantee a certain degree of of trust from uh, the people who needed to be brought along on the project. That's right. One of his, uh, actually, one of his most famous uh, quotes on being drunk, because he did that thing where he did like pithy quotes about being drunk, like Churchill. Um, was he was in a political debate with uh, a guy from the uh, the Clear Grit Party. Uh, because there's no sand or dirt in us. We are clear grit all the way down, clear George grit. Brown, uh, and said, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and he said, ah, uh, he said, sir, you are on the stage, uh, you're the debate stage drunk. Have you no respect for the people? And he said, I think the people would prefer John A. drunk to George Brown sober. And when he vomited on stage, uh, this, was, this was later on, uh, he he sort of recovered by saying, "Sorry, I only vomited because your ideas were so bad." Brilliant, <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, which, to be fair, is like that's just classic. Uh, that, that I feel like I feel like that's sort of um, that is pure sort of showman politics. Is being like, how do I get the audience back? Yeah, <laughs> vomited. I need to keep them in. I need to keep them on on side. That's uh, that's yeah. That's something I could see Trump doing something like that. You know, that's like oh yeah, definitely. Um, and, and the other sort of theme I think we're, I want to talk about is like the, so much of the history of Canada from confederation to this, the tariff policy, it, some of his famous like achievements, right? Confederation, uh, the national policy, which is about tariffs, and then the railway itself were just purely a reaction to what was going on in America. It was Canada, Canada's structure was Canada's fundamental the things that made Canada Canada, these early great achievements of our sort of first and best statesmen, our first and commonly thought of as best statesmen, not anymore because of all of the awful things he did, which we'll get to, um, are we're, we're, we're reacting to America and, or, or we're taking ideas from uh, we're either stealing ideas from the British and sort of applying them for sort of, you know, the colonial uh, sort of genocide of the native population in Canada or doing things for fear of what America would do if he didn't do them, or to try to get uh, induce America to do things by doing them. Yes. Right? But to be taken seriously by the Americans as a, as a real country. Um, so, uh, shall we start with a, a contemporary article 
uh, about John A. McDonald and why we should uh, respect him. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, by uh, Tristan Hopper in the National Post. Okay. Um, I, need to, I need to jump in. Before we do this article, um, for anyone uh, outside of Canada who doesn't know who Tristan Hopper is, and there's absolutely no reason why you should know, um, he's a little... If you like good articles. He's a little nasty little freak uh, who, <laughs> who now has, I believe, a weekly column with the Globe and Mail. Um, mm-hmm. But... Hopper, uh, to me, when we're talking about Hopper, we got to remember that this is a man who murdered a raccoon and posted pictures of him and his dad standing over the corpse because he thought it was funny. Um, this is a man who... Oh, sorry, before you do... Before, I want to do a tangent on the tangent. I'm sorry, but okay. <laughs> uh, do, do either of you guys know who Jolly and Mom is? No, he's a British guy. It sounds totally he's not made a British up. guy. Like a real yeah, so he is made up. He's yeah. a British guy, but he's he's real. Uh, he was like one of these like anti Corbyn pro Remain guys, right? He was like a, a, a Twitter obsessed like lawyer who posted all the time, and so it's like ah, Corbyn's gonna you know uh, take us back to the seventies. One of these um, on Boxing Day after the twenty nineteen election, he just voluntarily posted. Well, I've had quite a morning. I'm, I've just killed a fox with a baseball bat and I'm wearing nothing but my wife's kimono when I'm locked outdoors. Uh, I feel this. Guys love to admit to accidentally uh, to doing animal cruelty uh, and just posting about it. Um, it's like, this is incredibly this, British, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just him wearing like a slightly too small kimono, holding a bat covered in a cricket bat covered in fox blood. Oh. Uh, yeah. I hey, got the world he wanted. Anyway, sorry, Tristan Hopper. Yeah, I, I just want to read just before we find out what uh, Tristan thinks about John A. McDonald. We should we should just hear. A, I want to read you guys a couple of his tweets. Um, this is a recent one. How many couples are having sex right now in Canada? Is it the thousands, tens of thousands? Has there ever been a moment in our history, however brief, in which no one was boning? So that's one. <laughs> I've uh, it's every moment in the Hopper household. Number two, I guess, is a photograph of the Disney princess Ariel from um, the Little Mermaid. Uh, oh no, Ariel is easiest, easily the sexiest Disney princess, but this Dollarama suncatcher really ramps up the come hither look. This is a this Please. is a national columnist, uh, and then yeah. and then my absolute favorite. I've never really gotten over the fact that most people are having sex regularly. Kids think she's just an actress playing Snow White at Disneyland, but I know that she'll be eventually engaged in sweaty marital congress, probably within hours. What? <laughs> He's going to Disneyland and just sort of breaking the fourth wall by being like, ah, I know that this is just a costume and what you actually do is so he's just he's jacking off the entire time he's writing this yes definitely uh-huh. so i think i think that's it's important to know what kind of mind you're dealing with before uh, oh, before yeah. we we continue on to his thoughts on uh it's like our founding prime I, minister I, it's this that's that's a guy it's a guy who could use an exorcism as tristan hopper he's a he's like uh yeah. he's a milder version of rod Dreher. <laughs> he's the, he's the, i mean he's he's feeling himself and i respect it yeah <laughs> Oh, see, uh, he loves he loves to fantasize about yeah, what's what's under <laughs> what's what's under that beast costume? I wonder. That's right. Um, 
No, so this is this is Tristan Hopper's uh, uh, article uh, on John A. Macdonald. It was from a few years ago. Only Boris Yeltsin, the first president of the Russian Republic, could be said to have had a comparable comparable record as a drunk politician, stumbling in public and being too drunk to event state events, among other lapses. But where Mr. Yeltsin is widely seen as a drunken clown who handed Russia to oligarchs and set up the country for semi-dictatorial rule of Vladimir Putin, McDonald's record stands the test of time. Yes, the annals of Canadian history are littered with drunks, and yes, they generally destroyed their political careers, but the fact that McDonald managed so many achievements underlines his innate ability and character despite occasional flaws. <laughs> um, which again is sort of reframing um, McDonald's quite... Um, let's say, substantial role, uh, almost as the architect, you might say, of uh, the, um, the ongoing sort of genocidal program of residential schools that were established all across Canada. Or the establishment right? of a national police force, which would be, I, I believe, like the first national police force continentally, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, Oh, actually, if, um, if we want to talk about this, uh, we, can, we can talk a little bit about sort of, I'm, I'm sort of doing a jump around here in my, my orders, right? But um, I think one of the reasons we sort of are trying to uh, sort of people are fighting over the legacy of John A. McDonald. I mean, he's, he's one of these guys uh, for your benefit, Matt, who um, who has uh, statues being uh, argued, all, torn down, put up. Uh, people put up statues of him to trigger the trigger the libs. A Montreal a mayor, mayoral candidate has said he would keep the John A. McDonald statue up but with an explanatory. plot. all of our statue mania centers on this man. Yep. Uh, the, the the conservatives who are like, if you touch one hair on his bronze head, you are consigning Canadian history to the dustbin. The other people who are like, well, no, obviously we shouldn't have a statue of this man. What I find interesting, right, is that in America, the the fo- the focal point of the, of the statue battles tend to be Confederate generals, right? Right. They tend yeah. to be people who were removed from the Amer- or who were imagined to be removed from the American project as people who sort of fought against what it became. They are other to American history as it is conceived of broadly, right? I mean, depending on who you're talking to. You yeah, know, there, there's a very uh, uh, incoherent uh, argument that says that it's all America and it's all history and you can't discriminate between any of it. And if you get rid of any of the statues, we're all going to become demented and and forget our history. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I mean, they're usually, they're not Americans, although, I mean, that it's, it's changed. Like there Mm -hmm. has been a move towards uh, uh, going at, because a lot of people would say is sort of an attempt to defend and as a troll to say, well, what about, you know, the founders who were slave owners or whatever. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who have uh, been opposed to Confederate statues say yes, them too. Uh, and there have been some very exuberant crowds that have like uh, overturned statues of Abraham Lincoln, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's generally Confederate generals, yes. Yeah, and with McDonald, what I think is interesting is this character is our George Washington, right? This is our first guy, the big guy. He's the big guy. If you ask a group of Canadians who's the who's the father of Confederation. Like there were a bunch of them. It was him. If you ask a Quebecois person, they would say Cartier, maybe. But generally speaking, people will say John A. Macdonald. But he also, it's it's like, it's kind of like in in the sense of coming to terms with the sort of great historical crimes that were committed um, in order to to create this country. It's like Robert E. Lee was president, yeah, and right. was George Washington, 
basically. Well, yeah, <laughs> like, but that's like a lot of it's just because you guys don't you don't have any of our cool stuff. <laughs> you didn't have a revolution. You didn't have a civil war. It's just a bunch of uh, it's it's a bunch of paperwork, basically. Yes, hundred like, oh, percent. We filed for confederation status and shit. And boy, and did then we a few rebellions. That's all you got. But like yeah. the rebellions are all like uh, uh, the all the people who did the rebellions are now considered like uh, uh, like leftist icons or something. Yeah, mm. those rebellions mostly got crushed. And yeah, like you were saying, the paperwork it's mainly in the service of looking at the country and saying, well, we can't just be like a continent-wide company town run by Hudson's Bay, right? Like yeah. with an oppositional group of French people <laughs> nestled <laughs> away inside of it. We need to we need to assume a country like shape. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much that's I think that sort of that really nails it, right? Which is that sort of the the Canadas is upper and lower Canada roughly corresponds to eastern Ontario and then southern Quebec. And then the maritime provinces stay British colonies after sort of the uh, uh, for a little bit longer, like PEI stays in British colonies for a bit longer, but they sort of join in. But much of these, like these are, the, but much of the landmass of what is now Canada is owned directly by Hudson's Bay Company and is purchased by Canada uh, sort of later on for some hundreds of thousands of pounds, basically. But the, 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 the story, I think the, the story of Confederation being essentially a kind of just management restructuring of a large mining company <laughs> is kind of not far off uh, because this is, and, we talk, we, and, and Matt, you talk about the revolution, like these sort of attempted up res- revolutions as being sort of leftist icons. Those are even like the ones that we think of like Louis Riel. Those are sort of after Confederation who MacDonald himself, by the way, has executed. Um, the one, the rebellions beforehand, they're not really sort of thought of like, what happens is there are um, there are some minor skirmishes, basically, right? In, in nineteen in in eighteen thirty seven, uh, uh, you get uh, John A. McDonald, who was called Ugly John in his youth, who was practicing <laughs> as yeah, because everyone was named John because they were all Scots Presbyterian, and so if you weren't named John, you were considered how to be ugly, a tall poppy. How ugly did you have to be in eighteen thirty seven to be the ugly Scottish John? Yeah, that's that is a good question because uh, the first attractive person didn't appear in on Earth until like nineteen twenty five. Um. So he uh, so he's born born in Scotland in Glasgow. His parents moved and move over to, to Canada. Um, his dad is a failed serial entrepreneur, like so many, but Canada is a country of failed Scottish serial entrepreneurs yes. who like can't, who can't keep like a tarp store open in Paisley. And so just come over to fail to open a tarp store here and then have kids. Um, so he has, um, so he comes over here, uh, and, 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 uh, or over, I, I'm in Britain. He goes over there from where I am. Uh, and um, is raised in Kingston and becomes a barrister because specifically because he doesn't really care about the trades and being a barrister is a pretty obvious route to power and influence without having to do a ton of work. It's also crucially a, a job that during that time, when I was going through some of the reading here, during that time, barristers uh were notorious for just getting absolutely shit hammered especially in cornwall and kingston specifically <laughs> if you were a barrister you were probably a drunk um 
In fact, I mean, that's why the uh, in, in the UK, right, the inns of court, which are like the official professional bodies, which you have to belong to if you're a barrister, were literal inns that they would go and drink at while waiting to be hired by clients to go and, I guess, drunkenly represent them in front of a man in a wig. Uh, but what I'm getting at, right, is one of um, John's cases, right, is in 1837, he's a member of a colonial militia. And then subsequently in 1838, as these little uprisings begin sort of echoes of what happened in America earlier. Um, uh, John actually ends up rep- representing as a lawyer, the one guy who was tried outside of Toronto in this um, and some of these Ontario skirmishes. And then a group of sympathetic Americans who came up to try to free Canada from the yoke of the British. Um, and this is all in, in 1838. But all of this ends up with the first bit of paperwork being filed and Canada being granted responsible government in 1848. You know, I mean, it's a- 1848, a year of many, uh, many happenings. Um, but this is sort of where we get the beginnings of, of, well, we're not our own country, but we're responsible for more things domestically. Things are coalescing. It's, it's this slow transfer of power from the colonial authorities who are like, we don't really want to bother with this anymore. Um, and, and 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 you know this is this is where we sort of get to the um, get to this uh, this quote that I have here uh, from Arthur Lauer, in the 1950s, saying Canadian history, uh, English Canada inherited not the benefits but the bitterness of the revolution. English Canada started its life with as powerful a nostalgic shove backward into the past as conquest had given to French Canada. Two little peoples officially devoted to counter-revolution, lost causes, and the tawdry ideals of a society of men and masters and not to the self-reliant freedom alongside of them. You know, we, are, we are not, we're not like Americans. We are counter-revolutionary. We are the empire loyalists came up here to stay loyal to Britain. You know, seniors were sort of lived safe from the French Revolution in Quebec. You know, there are, there are, there are places where we, li- we knew where we were in the order of things in the world, which is we are there to cut down the trees, to hunt the beavers, to mine the, uh, to mine the nickel, and later to grow the wheat in the prairies once we eventually do manage to get people beyond the Canadian shield, right? But we, That's kind of what we're there we for. We needed Ukrainians t- for the wheat. Yeah. <laughs> you mean hardy, hardy sheep-coated uh, 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 step people. Stalwart peasants and sheepskin yeah. coats. But how does that track, Matt, like with what was happening uh, continuously like or alongside in the United States at the, around the same time? In what sense? I, I mean, like, so you, you've got these uprisings and this Co- coalescing of uh you know the starting of a canadian state in 1848 what's happening south of the border at that point how far ahead is the american project uh well by that point you've got uh the, the america like as a, a, as a truly continental aspiration because uh, that's around the time that uh uh that the united states sets its eyes on uh integrating the territory it's taken after the Mexican war uh, into its uh, sovereignty and begins the, the extended uh, sexual crisis that culminates in the civil war, uh, which really does come about because uh, the U S which has this imperative to expand uh, finally gets its, its wish in the sense that it's able to grab this huge chunk of territory from Mexico. But, uh, the question of whether or not slavery will be allowed in that territory then takes slave takes the issue of slavery, which both parties in the second 
party system had been very keen to keep away from the forefront of politics because they understood that it was the one thing that could break up the constitutional order that could not be assimilated into conventional politics and makes it uh, the increasingly the only issue Mm. uh, that anybody really cares about. And by, and by 48, it's, it's starting, starting to happen. Essentially the America expansionary project is overheating uh, over the question of slavery because of the failure to create an integrated political economy Mm. between the two uh, sections. Yeah. And it was actually, it was seeing this happening, right? Because as Canada was coalescing from uh, 1848 as responsible government to 1867 as confederation, is that Canada was looking down and especially MacDonald, who at this point had sort of gotten, you know, he puked on a few stages. He'd made a few drunken quips. Um, he had gotten himself elected in Kingston uh, as an MP, as a conservative. Um and he was seeing what was happening south of the border, and much of sort of the Canadian provincial system was kind of negotiated out at this time because we were seeing what happened when you see when there was sort of too distributed then power was too distributed federally. You know, there was this great worry that if we did something sort of similar, that uh, 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 we would um, we would also fall prey to this kind of. Um, this kind of schism and and interestingly right sectarianism sort of after after 48 right in the 1860s there actually is a kind of nascent political movement in canada a bill is actually introduced in the house of representatives uh to with canada's consent uh now that it is uh sort of mainly a a good upstanding anglo colony and the uh french have been you know uh, most assuredly sort of given sort of second fiddle uh there is a bill that's actually introduced uh, by a by a Massachusetts uh, uh, um, uh, 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 representative called Nathaniel Prentice Banks to uh, annex part of Canada, but interestingly, a lot of that um, that that political movement doesn't come from inside the American political machine. It comes from the main American motivator to confederate into a country, or one of the main American motivators, which is the Fenian raids. Uh, yes. <laughs> Which is, uh, if I mean, Matt, are you familiar with the Fenian raids? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. of course. What's uh, what's going on here? Yeah, I love the love those Fenians. Yeah, what's happening with the Fenian raids? Uh, so some uh, the some of the, the the Irish are pour, the Scots are pouring into Canada to build a better uh, beaver trap uh, <laughs> because Scotland is sometimes considered to be sort of a uh, a colonized element of the of the british empire but it got really the best terms of any of the subject peoples Mm. that the english subjugated as opposed to the irish who really did get uh proletarianized very early in fact uh ireland is where the first real experiments in uh in capitalist agriculture and uh, imperialism uh were carried out yeah they uh poured down into america uh and a number of them uh got an idea in their head over the years that they could liberate Ireland by conquering Canada and then demanding a swap <laughs> with with England. <laughs> Which, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they obviously didn't come very close, but I do kind of wonder uh, what what the crown would have made of that sort of trade because you know Ireland is right yeah. there. Yeah, I don't know if they would have been so uh, pleased to to make that deal. I don't know, but it never it never really worked <laughs> out. 
And in fact, if we wanted to sort of um, go from uh, Canada is a, a fake country, a, uh, a a sort of ratification of a bunch of mineral rights, basically, and that and farming rights, and then sort of trying to keep that safe from America, which is sort of dramatic and 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 thunderous and changing. If we want to talk a little bit about the personality of John A. Macdonald, that gels very well with the uh, the Fenian raids because. In 1866, the master of militia for Canada West was uh, a an up a political up and comer called John A. Macdonald, uh, and when uh, he was during in 1866, uh, a number of Fenians uh, mounted a raid to uh, seize some farms uh, in in Canada West in Ontario. Um, the township sent telegrams asking for help and calling for the militia to be brought in, but John A. Macdonald was too drunk to answer the telegram and was unable to raise himself or get the militia ready, and just nobody according, turned up. According to um, some of the stuff I read, he was he was not only too drunk to return the telegram, he was too drunk to comprehend it. Like, he was looking, you know, just basically like... Gone. Uh, Could not understand what he was what he was reading, what he was hearing. Look, looking at the telegram and just and just seeing it swim in front of you, think you're holding a snake. You drop it, terrified. Um, yeah, because this is uh, this is a, a a quote from a historian at the time. As the border situation worsened, McDonald was bombarded by requests for various military posts, including positions in a mounted force that didn't yet exist. He also received numerous offers from Americans to spy for, quote, the Secret Service of Canada for a suitable monetary reward. <laughs> McDonald was always a great believer in, in the enemy uh, and knowing what the enemy was up to and always authorized, quote, small sums of money for anyone who would give him any information. So he was basically, he was, and this is, he, personally, he just, he loves to get drunk and put on a little show and give out a little prize and just have people generally uh, uh, clap for him and and be fra- fans of his and friends of his. Um, Make some deals. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk, Dan? You want to talk about some uh, some a little bit of uh, sort of Johnny McDonald's oaf years? Yeah. Um, let me pull it. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. So yeah, just some just some quotes about like the background of uh, Upper Canada during during this time. So. Uh, an English visitor in 1840 reported the, that the people of Upper Canada were much less temperate than the people of the United States. Uh, Robert Lamond, an immigrant, warned his fellow Scotsman in 1821 that the immoderate use of spirits is one of the greatest curses in this country. Finding cheap rum, he wrote, newcomers, quote, often indulge in it to the utmost extent of their vicious, uh, uh, voracious appetites. <laughs> Uh, Susanna Moody lamented that, quote, the very low price of whiskey places the temptation constantly within everyone's reach. Don't I know it, lady? Um, it's just it's too cold. It, it is. It's, and it's miserable. That's just at, at the end of the day, that's what it is. When you got when there's nothing, you can't leave the house for months and months and months at a time. And I mean, God, they're, they're, you can't even watch a streaming television program. <laughs> How are you not going to just get absolutely shitfaced? To this day in the United States, the drinkingest part of the country is the part I'm from, which is the part that is sort of the most Canadian in its uh, 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 temperature and culture. Yeah, the uh, Upper Midwest. That's um, right. But what, what are I the mean, things? When you're, fa- okay. when you're faced with like sub-zero temperatures and and a white sky for uh months and months at a time you're gonna you're gonna sit in your house and like you said matt like in 1821 what are you going to what are you gonna do you're gonna 
Yeah. Sit in your house, stare at the candle, mm-hmm. reread one of the three books you have that yeah. aren't like too haram. Yeah, yeah. One of the three diff- slightly different Bibles you have, two of which give you a heretical thrill. Talk to yeah. your wife. Uh, you hate her. Um, well, no, yeah. You know what this is? It's also the... Um, it's it's because you know it's uh Canada Canada was not founded by um you know uh, uh people seeking to become a new a new and and perfected type of human it was founded by people who were like well I'm going to go work in the forest for a while and then who just sort of ended up staying and this is just classic forest guy behavior of just being like well I'm I'm going to you know be a, a logger in Cowich and Lake you know so I guess I'm like you know what am I going to do there's nothing else to do here but cocaine, so I guess I'm just gonna yeah. do it. You're gonna get an eight ball, and uh, you're gonna sit in your basement and drink a flat of Lucky, yeah, staring at the fucking wall, yeah, like. Uh, and so it's like uh, even sort of gentlemen that, and, and so it was because um, Canada, like at the time as well, was known by reputation even in America as being a liquored up place. Like it was, it was a party. It was a party uh, uh, territory because everyone was just well, drunk wanna, all the time, more I, than America. I want to, I want to just throw in like uh, I've I've got a couple more uh, wild years uh, quotes here, and one of them uh, is from uh, Get Fiscal's hometown, Don Hughes' hometown, mm-hmm. Cornwall. Um, it says uh, in Cornwall in 1855, it was common to see barristers quote stretched out upon the street in a helpless state of intoxication elections were (laughs) notorious for conviviality uh whiskey in large quantities must be wholesome dave mcpherson uh remarked after his first campaign or i would have given a job to uh to a coroner before now and the the other funny thing right is that like john a mcdonald was at this to a T, right? Like he he was he wasn't constantly drunk, but he was as a binge drinker. At any time there was yeah. a big event going on, he would drink himself to the point of insensibility. And again, this happened like multiple times in Parliament throughout his career. Um, but that's because one of the reasons because of this is he experienced a great deal of personal tragedy in his early life, losing uh, his uh, uh, losing a child, um, uh, losing two children, in fact, losing a wife. Uh, it was said after sort of that happened is when he sort of descended into drunken drunkenness, um, but that his his personal style was uh, to you know get up on stage and then like in order to win an election it was all by acclaim you had to get it was the, a, a local election at the time to be an MP was the contest of how drunk could you get the sort of vagrants who lived in your constituency <laughs> like whoever got them drunkest tended to win um, but in addition to that. Uh, his style of politicking was, again, sort of much more in keeping with sort of a boss tweed figure, right? Uh, someone who deals in patronage and favors. Someone who you know g- gives gives the gives the homeless man a, a bottle of whiskey, asks him to grow a beard, tells him to vote, shave, and vote again. You know, this is sort of the the McDonald style, even sort of as he governs. You know, um, this is from there's an archive that I sort of I, I pulled some of these from. Uh, these are letters to and from, sorry, from John A. Macdonald. Um, he says, uh, to a Francis Abbott of Ottawa, Dear Sir, I have to acknowledge the receipt of your memorial on 10th instant, the subject of an increase in wages to you as operator on the Rideau Canal. I shall speak to Mr. Chappé, the Commissioner of Public Works, on your behalf. Yours truly, John A. Macdonald. To Mrs. EDSW uh, Whitkins of Bresco. Madam, I regret to say at present I can hold out little hope of Mr. Wilkins being employed in the public service. 
After all, the government of Canada is coming to an end and no appointments are made except those are absolutely required. It will be the future governor of British North America, me, and the local government of, of the provinces to make appointments. I remain your ob- very obedient servant or even one that's just like this. Um, I have mentioned your name favorably to the commissioner of public works as it rests with him to make the appointment of lighthouse keeper. <laughs> so it was, he just, he ran, he ran every, every stage of politics that he was in, sort of whether he was a master of militia or a keeper of, of, of or a low level MP or whatever. He always ran it like a sort of personal brokerage office, just giving out, giving out favors and patronage uh, sort of making sure every, he always kept everyone happy, just deal making, just deal making and drunkenness. And to me, that strikes me as something that you can't, you cannot do that if you are resting a new society from nothing. That's something that you can do if you're just administering a structure for your own benefit, right? Yeah. All right. So uh, in, in 1873, after, after Canada is created, after Canada exists as a country, right? It is, is now... It is now a play. The, the, the colonial, uh, the corporate colonial apparatus has been turned into a Westphalian state because it's the late 19th century. You have to be a state if you want to exist, right? You can no longer just be a company's sort of sovereign territory. That, that, that concept doesn't really work anymore. So we have to have a thing shaped like a state. And mm-hmm. I think this is sort of, this goes to, I think, sort of, again, McDonald's, McDonald's complicity in, Sort of the, the the genocide of uh of the attempted genocide of the uh, indigenous people of Canada is again one of a uh, backroom deal maker, an administrator, um, and uh, a a sort of a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a, a sort of banality of evil thing, right? Yeah. Um. So we can talk about like the the, the Mounties are created in 1873 uh, as a paramilitary force. They become a national police force, but they're paramilitary. They're the Northwest Mounted Police. And they were directly modeled on the Royal I- Irish Constabulary, which was also a paramilitary colonial police force. Um, and, you know, this is in 1873, at the same time as he's building this, this force, he also is uh, kicked out of office. Uh, one of the one of the several times, so one of the interregnums between uh, him being prime minister, he's kicked out of office for doing engaging in another great Canadian tradition, which is uh, accepting a gigantic bribe on behalf of yes. on behalf of your political party by someone who wants to do a big piece of national infrastructure, which like he's also massively in debt at this point, right? Uh, like, well, it's it's the it, he is, but it's the Conservative Party who takes the donation. Which is exactly how corruption in Canada works still, where SNC Lavalin just like gets to you know build a, build the giant hospital with you know papier mâché instead of concrete because they they have a trick where they can get their executives to, like give over the odds to the Quebec Conservative Party. This is a Canadian right. tradition is born with John A. Macdonald of just big sort of uh, big ticket infrastructure spending that's just full of kickbacks to the party. Um, but the, uh, what we do is, in, is before this happens, right, he creates the, the, uh, the Northwest Mounted Police. And they have, what they have to do is they have to go out into the West, which is still officially just effectively just a company town or a company area that is almost yeah. all of Canada. It's not even a town. It's not even a town. <laughs> townless. Um, at that, where most of the people who live, the vast majority of the people who live there are, uh, are indigenous or Métis. Um, and... Uh, then they have to begin uh, effect. I mean, they have to then begin enforcing Canadian law, making it so 
that property rights matter out here. They have to, mm-hmm. they, and, and, and the story as to why they were created is one that will be familiar to many people who might understand uh, responsibility to protect. Um, what, we, what, what we say officially is that McDonald had received reports of the devastating effect of the whiskey trade on the Blackfoot blood in other First Nations. Um, so a, a British army officer was then sent to go investigate conditions in the frontier, and he wrote this. The region of the Saskatchewan is without law, order, or security for life or property. Robbery and murder for years have gone unpunished. Indian massacres are unchecked, even in the close vicinity of the Hudson Bay Company's post, and all civil and legal institutions are entirely unknown. And so what we do is we create what becomes the RCMP, this paramilitary force, and um, send them out to go and protect uh, the first the, the, the indigenous people from the American whiskey traders who are um, bringing them uh, the, the fire water, essentially this, this whiskey mixed with sort of chili and, and, and things of this nature. And I mean, but John A. McDonald notes this uh, danger firsthand. Yes. So <laughs> it's true. He's just, and so I mean, what's y- you get the this this shape of the, almost the first humanitarian, an early humanitarian intervention, where ostensibly the purpose is well, you know, we must protect these sort of poor benighted people uh, from sort of you know sin and the the vagaries of the people who are abusing them. Um, but what they actually do is they just clear everyone off of the land that the Canadian Pacific Railroad is going to be built on, uh, which is, again, you know, a, a kind of a story as old as, you know, um, you know, vaguely liberal societies, right? Classic Canadian politeness. <laughs> I, I respect it. <laughs> um, right? and Human rights-based intervention, uh, you know. <laughs> um, and at the same time, right? The same kind of, of justifications are used by sort of McDonald and, uh, and, and his close associates to write uh, the Indian Act, um, which uh, basically says it is now criminal to live as, uh, 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 as a native Canadian, as an indigenous person. You're, you, you now are being, you can no longer wander you know, the land. You're forced to live in reserves. And, and in so doing, you're basically going to have to farm. You will must become sedentary and agricultural, and uh, yeah. don't worry about speaking your language because we are going to. And again, with this uh, force that was born from responsibility, a version of responsibility to protect, we are going to steal your children and kill many of them, effectively. But it was through this quite sort of um, it was through this story that these sort of colonial forces are sort of built and deployed, and that are done so again in a very that are, are, are done so in, a, I think, a quite sort of Canadian way, right? This, this thing of, oh, well, we're, we're, we're doing everyone a favor, you know, by, by going out and yeah. doing this. There's not, I mean, there's not much difference, as an aside, between like the genesis of uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police and, and what they've been doing in, you know, like Fairy Creek, for yeah. instance. This is, you know, like, like it's, it's, it is a total through line with very little change. You know, Ferry Creek is now, I think, the largest mass arrests mm-hmm. in Canadian history yeah. for civil dif- disobedience at the behest of a resource extraction company. Or, right? or even like what, what, what the Mounties are doing for like um, land and water defenders in BC. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the Canadian state, which represents the fact, for example, that either uh, oil has to be taken from, from the tar sands and piped out into a port in British Columbia, or uh, we need to have a railroad so that for any for a number of reasons, so that we can keep 
uh, we can knit this country together so the Americans don't take it. And so we can get goods from you know, p- the Pacific in Vancouver to the Atlantic on the St. Lawrence River. So we need to get these people out of here. It's like if you look, look and at- you're being arrested for your own safety, <laughs> too. That's like if you look at some of the some of the reasoning behind arresting protesters at, at uh, any of these land defense protests, it's like, well, you know, it's it's dangerous out here. We got to can't be hanging out in the forest yeah. uh, chaining yourself to a tree buddy yeah, I might get eaten by going a, to jail I might get arrested you might get Lyme yeah. disease can't you have get, it might get Lyme disease yeah, chronic yeah. Lyme you don't want that but it's uh it's I think if you look at if you look at the at John A. McDonald from this perspective right I think you sort of find that there's a great deal of, of continuity between pre-Canadian history Canadian history, early Canadian history and modern Canadian history. We've just been doing the same stuff domestically, internationally. We've been worried about the same things. Uh, We've even been led by the same kinds of people who engage in the same kinds of foibles, whether it's Rob Ford smoking crack or, you know, um, getting a or or, or there's sort of numerous SNC Lavalin scandals in the Liberal Party. It's just I feel like Canadian history is this or at least this this sort of official rarefied political Canadian history is just this undifferentiated blob of um of the management of just the, the, the of the technocratic management of just making sure the resources stay getting extracted smoothly right i mean, mm-hmm. I, how, I wonder how that compares to the american story in broad strokes well, i mean it, we ours uh, history is the same thing. It's just we have a more compelling narrative to lay on top mm. of it because th- it is this tale of like struggle and and combat to to tame and and conquer an area. So that there, even if it is at the end of the day just a business, it's just a resource extraction endeavor. It's it's just a bunch of companies making uh, profits over time uh, and, and accumulating capital. Uh, the narrative around it is one of of action, mm. whereas you don't really have that in Canada, which I think is why there's this uh, instead a fetish a fetishizing of of politeness mm. and, and niceness because that's really all you have mm. to to be a prophylactic on on top of the the grim reality of just pure pure uh exploitation yeah yeah i i think that's i i think that's really explains a lot of uh one of our earlier episodes we talked to uh uh aaron bertovo from uh chapo fym about alberta separatism and i think that explains some of uh the reason why someone living in red deer for instance would start waving around a, a like a confederate flag with maple leaves on it mm. you know they need to they, you, you know, if you're looking for some kind of thing to be proud of, you ha- you don't you can't find it domestically. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want it to be combat or struggle, you have to look to the United States. Yeah, and I, I think this is or oh, or you have to look or you have to look to something like Louis Riel, and then all oh, shit, uh, you're not yeah. <laughs> you're a leftist yeah. now. Oops. <laughs> um, and I, it also it's I think it it it. it we can draw a line directly from kind of looking at our founding stories this way or the founding stories of our institutions like the RCMP, uh, which many people are still proud of. And I think you can sort of draw out a lot of the Canadian smugness 
it sort of goes through all of it like a vein of butter, right? The um, this idea that oh, everything was by agreement, everything was sort of well managed, and t- it was why you know the Canadian Constitution promises peace, order, and good government. Like that's what that's mm. what we have. We don't have liberty and justice for all. And again, I'm I'm aware that these things are sort of window dressing on the same kinds of activities, but how we tell the story of our history is how we pick our window dressing. And that's how we choose to disguise the awfulness of what it is that we actually do as an organization. And where the Americans choose to sort of put, a, put it as a, a grand story of becoming, we choose to talk about how actually wonderful we all are interpersonally, which, if anything, I find much more annoying. I think it's much more cloying. Yes. Um, much less to write Imagine home about. Imagine how... D- Imagine how different it would be if we just embraced the oaf side of things. The you know, it's just I'm not saying it would be better. It would just be interesting to see like uh, a nation of oafs develop by oafs for oafs. Yeah, like the, like that's that's the good. That's Canada good ending. You know, yeah. we need we need to be a nation of Rob Fords, not a nation of Casey <laughs> Irvings. Anyway, they were contained in one man in John A. Macdonald, and upon his death, were unleashed. To, to to cover Canada like the ghosts at the end of Ghostbusters, Thetans. Yeah, that's right. We all no, we all have too many Casey Irvings. That's what makes us uh, to, uh, as what prevents us from reaching our potential. We need a C meter so we can you gotta we can kill learn. the Casey Irving in your head. Yeah, that's right. Um, but like that's sort of that's sort of like the 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 all of the sort of textual stuff I've got. Um, so I mean, let's just just. Uh, so what what is I mean we could say like what does it all mean to sort of understand the sort of nature and 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 factuality that understand the sort of purpose of the of these foundational stories and the facts behind them right what what's what's what the, what there is a purpose to that I feel but I'm interested to know what you guys think I th- I think you know looking into like when you look at this stuff you I think you have to like you have to go through it in a way that uh in a way that's honest and and then <laughs> as as a citizen of this country in in 2021 you can you can try and as much decision making power as you have you can you can act accordingly but just blind sort of blind uh veneration of like a foundation myth is going to get you nowhere <laughs> and and that's what li- i think canadian liberals like to do when they talk about how yeah, this I, is I, or I isn't us say, yeah, you see that reflected on all sides of the political party here in uh, of the political spectrum here in Canada, which is incredibly frustrating. I think it's the thing that underpins it's the thing motivating the sort of indistinguishable foreign policy from people who are supposed to be left mm-hmm. and like right wing think tanks. It's at the root of all of that. Yeah, it's the it's it's because we're all kind of on the same team of of managers. And again, it's yeah. the same thing in the U.S., but I think we don't try to hide it. We're proud of it. <laughs> and I mean, it goes to show that sort of holding this belief or the other belief changes nothing about what your polity actually is and does. Nothing. But it, I think if you understand, if you understand the ideological purposes they serve and how they came to be and sort of the, the histories they're based on, you can be a little bit, I don't know, armed against it, I suppose. You can be resistant to its charms. You can sort of see through a little bit of the supposedly sort of very desirable consensus. I'm, I'm not sure. Matt, any, any final, final thoughts before we uh, pull this uh, train into the station? It, it all sounds very nice. 
the whole the whole thing. It sounds. I I know you guys are like, oh, this sucks. They have all this this fake patina of of politeness and consensus, but you know the grass is always greener on the other side of the border. Uh, and uh, I certainly I don't know. I guess I guess I'd take it yeah. right now. Well, I mean, yeah, that's uh, that's that's as good a slogan as any I can think of for Canada. I guess I'll take it right now. <laughs> I guess I'll take it right. <laughs> Just before you go, drunkest American president. Contemporaneous. Uh, well, I mean, Grant has the reputation, but he wasn't really that drunk. His his reputation for drunkenness mostly stems from his time uh, as a uh, an army officer in California after the Mexican War, where he literally had nothing to do but hang around the state, the, the forts, and get shit faced. Uh, but uh, he drank. He drank a good amount. They were all. Uh, I would say that the drunkest was Franklin Pierce. Mm. Okay. Uh, also known as Handsome Frank. Oh, and definitely our most Ugly John. <laughs> ugly John, uh, Handsome and, Frank. Yeah, the actual opposite of Ugly John. Beautiful head of black hair. Uh, an under, uh, a guy who is a bottom tier, like one of the worst presidents, but gets overshadowed by James Buchanan, who comes right after him and who gets most of the, of the blame for allowing the Civil War to break out. But really, uh, if there, if, if at that point, the Democratic uh, party was just appointing different northern doe faces to to carry out the southern uh, policies so it easily could have been the other way around and if, if pierce had been uh chosen after buchanan and he would have been remembered as the worst president but so he uh, uh a a doe face is doe face uh he was not a best friend of nathaniel hawthorne uh was known for being junk basically all the time at a time when everyone was really drunk. So that, that really tells you that it must have been uh, a lot of alcohol. But like McDonald, he had personal tragedy in his life that sort of makes the drunkenness more understandable. His son was killed uh, in a train accident in front of him uh, shortly before his assumption of the presidency. God. Oh, no. <laughs> that's, that's, it's not how you want to kick off a presidency, to be honest. No. No, no. 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 Um, anyway, uh, it is, it is after midnight for me over here in, uh, in Britain. So unless I'm going to go be one of the, uh, the, 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 the oafs overseen by the overseers uh, in Canada, uh, I think it's about time for us to, uh, finish bringing this train into the station. So, um, uh, Matt, thank you very much for coming on once again and talking about some Canadian prime ministers. Yes, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, thank you, man. And, and thank you to all of you out there for listening. And don't forget, there's a second episode available every week. Uh, it can be ha- yours for the low, low price of seven of uh, our Canadian dollars uh, per month on Patreon, as is normal. So you know what to do. Um, in the meantime, uh, I guess we'll see you in a few days for a discussion of uh, the wit and uh, questionable wisdom of uh, Canadian uh, Gen X, the, the voice of Gen X Canada, Douglas <laughs> Copeland. <laughs> he just won't go away. He's that good. He's our... We have to keep hearing. We have to keep hearing about what Douglas Copeland thinks about things. So if you're, if you're an American and want an American equivalent, uh, it is American Brett Easton Ellis, but th- kind of seen through the eyes of Portlandia. It's really annoying. It's good stuff. Uh, so we'll catch you then. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.